Take your copy of the Bible, turn to Isaiah 52. This is God's Word written for you today. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak here. I am. How beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says of Zion, says, sorry, excuse me, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purifying yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. We're going to stop there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is indeed marvelous as it reveals your character and your actions to us. Would you give us understanding, O God, and would you give us faith? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. don't know if you saw the video, it's not important. Went viral a few months ago of a, a, a young lady who was getting her horse ready to go riding. And uh, she'd been brushing the horse or whatever. And she gets out the bridle, you know, gets ready to put the, the bit into the horse's mouth and the bridle up over the horse's head and gets ready to ride or whatever. And gets the horse, gets the horse's head down the way that she always puts it on. But then right before she puts it on, she ducks the bridle behind her back and acts like she puts it on. 
The horse opens his mouth, expecting it to go in, but there's no actual bit to go, expecting the bridle to go over the top, but there is no bridle to go over top. And it's, she mimes the action. In this spectacular moment, you get to watch this horse fully get tricked, and it thinks that it's got all of its riding gear on it. And it thinks that for you know, 30 seconds or whatever else as it kind of goes stumbling off or whatever. And, what, and you can see the exact moment when the horse realizes, hey, wait a minute. There's this fantastic moment where, uh, uh, you know, one of God's lesser creatures, certainly than us, were made in his image. But this young lady tricks her horse into thinking that it has restraints upon it that are not actually there. It takes the horse a kind of couple of moments to realize, and uh, that actual kind of, we're thinking technically, that moment where the, the horse was not actually in bondage but thought it was, is largely where Isaiah 52 kind of hones in as a text. Now, Israel throughout this book has been kind of struggling as they've wrestled with sin, they've fallen prey to sin, to disobedience, and to idolatry, and the Lord has been strong and sharp with them through his prophet Isaiah. You've had prophesied judgment coming, you've had prophesied restoration coming, but chapter 52 deals with something a little bit more significant than simply just a nation that's being invaded Rather, instead, this chapter is dealing not with the invasion of Babylon or Assyria, but really uh, with a sinful heart, a sinner struggling with the redeeming work of God and yet unable to kind of rouse their mind to see, I am free in Christ, free in His redemption. It's the movement we see in the text. It starts in verses 1 and 2. The ESV actually uh, has this drawn up beautifully in the print Bible. Uh, Occasionally you get those moments where it's like, man, your formatting is marvelous. They did a really good job. It's very lovely. 1 and 2 kind of start out in that moment as the Lord speaks to His people. It's a continuation of the previous chapter, a a kind of wake-up call. That's what it starts with, awake, awake. But here the incongruity follows. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, you holy city. It's time to get dressed and to be beautiful. It's time to get lovely. You get the kind of picture almost of like the wedding planner that, you know, walks across and the bride's not dressed yet and the wedding starts in a minute. That's kind of the impression. It's the Lord speaking to his people saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's time to be dressed. It's, it's time to be ready. It's time to be beautiful. It's time to be arraigned with all of the greatness and grandeur that God has designed for you people of God. But what's happening to you instead is verse 2. You've decided to go play in the dirt. Sitting in the dirt, much like the horse, confused and thinking the bondage still exists. Thinking that the dirt is the place they belong. Thinking that the filth is who they are. 
Again, I, I love that kind of image. Can you imagine, uh, you know, right before the right before the wedding's supposed to start, you're expecting the bride to to be you know dressed. All the the guests are in the building. Watch it. Where where is it? You go wandering over to the other building, and instead of finding the, the bride dressed in her dress, she's out playing making mud pies in our wonderful retaining pond in the back. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You'd, you'd, you'd question, like, what is going on in your head that you're supposed to be ready to enjoy this great day, the, the, the party that's here, the happiness that's here, the friends and the fun, the freedom and the joy. It's a great day. Why are you out playing in the mud instead? What are you doing? What's going on? Well, Part of what Israel's struggling with is that um, even though this, this portrait of the Lord's redemption is so real, it's, it's true he is accomplishing their salvation. And in fact, this chapter is so fun because the verb tenses really start mixing and uh, intentionally so confuse that it hasn't happened yet, but it already has. It's really wonderful. It sets us up for next week where we get into my favorite chapter. But this call, it's time to wake up from the spiritual bondage that we remain in. And that's actually an easy application for us as we think about um, this order of worship. Again, Brandon built it before he left, but it's wonderfully sweet as he's been kind of challenging us to think through, we are called to live according to our new nature. If you are in Christ, this was that first John reading, if you're in Christ, you have a new nature, you're going to live according to that new nature, you're going to live according to the freedom and the righteousness and the glory that God calls us to. And yet, sometimes, we, like a dog, returns to its vomit, a pig to its slop. We, instead of living that great and glorious and grand life of righteousness that God calls us to, we revel in the filth and the mess and the muck of the world in which we live. And that would be perhaps the challenge for us. Wake up. Wake up. It, it, it's time to pay attention again. You've fallen asleep. You've fallen in love with the world around. It's time to wake up. One of those great moments in music history for those in my age bracket, right as kind of Gen X was coming into its a proverbial spending power and the cultural revolution taking place with an entire generation kind of pushing back against the yuppieism and the, uh, the consumerism and the affluence and kind of wanting and longing for things that are real, a band I can't endorse in any way their politics or their music, Rage Against the Machine, ends up publishing right at the end of one of the quintessential movies of Generation X. The closing scenes the lead singer screaming at the top of his lungs, calling a generation, wake up, wake up. And you think about it, that's, that's in so many ways kind of definitive. For those of us in our 40s, 
the matrix closing with him just screaming in our ears, it's time to wake up. What are you doing? You've fallen asleep with the world. Now, they're wrong. They're trying to wake us up to the wrong things, challenging us instead to pose some other version of materialism and false ideology. Instead, here the Lord challenges us to something far greater far richer. Instead, he actually, in verses 3 and 4, acknowledges why we're prone to going back to playing in the mud, why we are prone to, like a dog, returning to its vomit. It's because that is our story. It's not like it's foreign to us. Look at what he says, for the Lord says, you were sold for nothing. Like, this is actually your history. You were slaves, and you're the worst kind. You weren't valuable. You weren't useful. You're not the first person picked when we're picking teams. You're literally the pity pick, right? The kid that everybody picks just because you feel badly if you ignore them because they're not going to contribute. They're not going to help. You were sold for nothing. You're useless. My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there. Is your Syrian oppressed them? Look, these people did terrible things. It is your story. But verse 5. But my name, my name's upon you. You belong to me. Where you go, I go with you. Where you travel, you take my name with you. I think this probably would have changed how I would have thought about sin when I was a younger man. If I had thought that everywhere I go, I take the name of God with me. Right? Every, every place that my body travels the name of the triune God goes with. Might add a slightly different perspective on sin, wouldn't it? Right? It's easy to sin when we think God's far away, when He's not here with us, and in fact, actually, His very name is in the room with. I carry it with me in my baptism. I can't run from that. Lord, in verse 5, says, my name is despised. This is what the rulers were crying out for. You were actually oppressed. That is your story. You needed to be freed. You were a slave and a slave of the worst kind. But I am the God who redeems. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Look, you want to be freed. It's not the government that's going to do it. You want to be freed. It's not going to be a a, a Christian music industry or movie industry that's going to do it for you. You want to be freed. It's certainly not going to be an HOA that does it for you. The only thing that's true and real freedom, it's not therapy, It's not a new doctor. It's the Lord God. The Lord God who transforms people from the inside out. The Lord God who makes new His creatures. The Lord God who knows all the ins and outs of the suffering that you have endured and still says, friend, it's time to wake up and live differently. It's time to live according to that new nature. 
I love that kind of declarative, powerful end to verse 6. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. I don't tend to like using shall. Makes it miserably difficult to read in public without mispronouncing things in terrible ways. But boy, it's good here, isn't it? The Lord's going to do this. It's not up for negotiation. He's not sitting down and kind of striking a bargain with the devil. They're not playing poker for you. He's not, you know, out in Vegas riding some blackjack table. No. He will do what he wants to do. He is the God who saves. Now, how is that going to happen? Again, you can imagine for those of us that, you know, when we're in our deepest hurt, this is one of the things that it's so easy to see that when we hurt our most kind of deeply, that soul sorrow, when it feels like the walls are dark and closing in, when it feels like the, you know, kind of the grief and the, 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 the darkness of just weighed in and kind of compressed in upon us, it feels like he's so far away. Like, how, could, how can God help me here? How can he help me with this? I mean, have you seen the mess I'm in? Have you seen how convoluted it is? Have you, have you seen how powerful my enemies are? Have you seen how miserable this is? He has, he, he's not here. I mean, I know he's speaking to me, and I know that it's in concept, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, you don't ever say out loud, friend. But that's that thought process, isn't it? And all of those promises that he helps, that he cares for us, that he's with us, and all those sorts of things, they're promises that are far, far away or they're promises that are with me in the good days, but they're not when they're in the bad days. I love the solution that he proposes. Verse 7. One of these verses you've heard probably quoted a bunch of times, missions conferences, probably have no idea what it means. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. These two verses describe a kind of really beautiful picture. You have God's people, again, being described as the city of Jerusalem, holy Zion, She's been a mess. Verses 1 and 2, she's still living in that kind of concept of captivity that even after she's been freed, she's kind of living in the bondage of her mind and the sinful uh, things that linger. The reality of it was verses 3 through 6 that her bondage actually was real at points in history. These people have been enslaved in Egypt. They've been enslaved to Assyria and to Babylon. The solution is this beautiful kind of portrait of people without cell phones living in the moment. Actually, it's, I mean, it is without cell phones. If you don't, I mean, realistically today, when you have friends that are coming to visit or family that's coming to visit, there's a point where there's a series of texts that are constantly interchanged. It happens every time you have long distance people traveling, right? At some point, somebody pulls their phone out and sends the where you at text, correct? You know this. That's all it is. It's always in that form of grammar. For some reason, I'm not entirely sure. Oh, displeasing, horrible language. And the response is usually, 
right? Stuck in traffic 15 minutes away or something of the sort. But that lets you know that you have 15 minutes left to panic clean before they get there. <laughs> but your expectations are set. We know that's when they're going to be here. That's when, that's when we, we, we find out they're going to get there. Well, that's even easier when we even know they're coming in the first place because they've been able to text us, hey, can I crash at your place this week? <clears throat> that happened to us this week. It was really fun, right? Uh, by God's mercy, Brandon uh, did a wonderful job at Claire's funeral and grieve uh, Claire's homegoing. But uh, on the way home, Brandon got stuck in all of the nasty storms. His flight was delayed. So uh, he shoots me a phone call. So uh, what you doing this afternoon? Hey, Brandon, what you doing, buddy? The functional where you at text. It's like, can I, uh, can I crash at your place tonight? I'm not going to make my flight. Great, buddy. I'd love that. I can be excited about that. And so he and I stayed up to the wee hours of the morning, Monday night, talking, catching up uh, before I dropped him off at the airport Tuesday morning. It was wonderful. Got to see. But that whole thing was navigated via cell phones, right? So that expectations are clearly set. Be a little different, you know, if it had been he just showed up at my house Monday night at 9.30. Wow, buddy. What are you doing here? You live like multiple states away. What is going on? Why are you here again? I'm confused. Weren't you just in Ohio this morning? Verse 7 is the cell phone, no cell phone version of this. It's the Lord and his retinue, his caravan is traveling to the holy city to come and reside there. He's coming to be with his people, to dwell in and among them, to live with them so that the relationship is close and tender. But rather than showing up just kind of, he's there, he sends a warning. Not a text, hey, can I crash at your place or phone call like Brandon did. Instead, he sends messengers that go running ahead. How beautiful in the mountains, the mountains surrounding Zion, remember it's on a hilly terrain. How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who run. And it's not because the messengers actually have beautiful feet. They probably had really ugly feet. Everybody has ugly feet. But instead what it is is the beautiful, the message they carry makes them lovely. They go running through the hills to Zion saying, the King of kings and the Lord of glory is coming behind me. Hey, Jerusalem, it's time to panic clean The Lord of Lords is right behind me. It's only a matter of time until the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is promised, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he's coming to live here. It's time. It's time. How beautiful is the, the job of the messenger that proclaims the coming of the king. And you get to see the kind of consequence of the message. It's wonderful. Uh, verses 8 and 9 really kind of captures that everywhere this messenger goes, he, as he kind of runs into the city, you get the impression as he runs into the city, he's kind of shouting his, his message. He's shouting the, the letter he's supposed to be carrying. He's telling everyone as he goes running in. And everywhere he goes, people just start singing and rejoicing. As he passes through the walls, the watchmen here, they start singing, 
They're excited. They get into the crowds in verse 9. They break out into singing. Even the bad parts of the city. Everybody's singing. Because the Lord is coming to live with His people. Now, interestingly, this passage we get to see fulfilled really in two ways. Really in the two arrivals of the Lord Jesus. In fact, that's actually where Paul then quotes it in Romans. It's to say part of uh, what this is referring to is now the people of God proclaiming that good news that God has come to dwell amongst His people. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus resides with us and in us. And He's coming again. You see, really, this is, I think, wonderfully and sweetly the message of the gospel You get to see kind of the the flow of it. It's just so beautiful. A people that have been in bondage, struggling with hope and misery, struggling with hopelessness and difficulty, and the good news coming in. The King is coming. And in fact, He's coming not to destroy all of you, He's coming to destroy His enemies and our enemies that He would reign over us fully and freely. Now, uh, dear friends, again, I I don't know how much you've paid attention to this, but really, since I was a child, one of the things that has multiplied in this country is a staggering wave of hopelessness. Really, my childhood, I think, was largely filled with uh, a a nation that was filled with optimism. We had made it through a bunch of really bad times as a country and had kind of come into new affluence, and uh, the nation was kind of coming into its own in many ways. But perhaps the consequence of that affluence and certainly a consequence of some of the thought patterns that were very common then is we have a nation now that's, that's dying from the inside out because of hopelessness. Right? I mean, you look at just, just the numbers regarding suicide. Right? Look at the number of, numbers of, and again, not saying there aren't medical causes for this. I'm, I'm not saying all of it. I'm saying some of it. But the, the percentage of women over like 30 that are on antidepressants. It's like 50% right now. It's insane numbers. Right? We're, we're looking at a nation. I'm not, again, not saying there's not good uses for that. We're looking at a nation that does not know what to do. It's no hope, and it doesn't know what to do. And friends, we literally are sitting on this message that the king has come, and he'll free you from all of the bondage that you could possibly imagine, and that the king is coming again, and you get to live with him freely, joyfully, blissfully, forever. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of suffering. You can live the good life now and forever. That's really, I think, part of what we need to kind of be pushing back into our brain. And I know that in our kind of moment in time where everybody's like, you live your truth and I'll live my truth. Well, sorry, your truth is terrible. 
It's garbage. That's why the suicide rate now is so insanely high, right? What is it, the number one cause of death in young people now? It surpassed car accidents. It's terrible, absolutely terrible. We have the good news that gives hope. The Lord loves you. He sent his son to save you. His son died on your behalf. And on top of that, he's actually coming to live with you forever. The son has already. In fact, he's bringing us home that we will live with the Trinity forever. I think that's actually, to me, I, I think one of the parts that's so encouraging about where the passage ends. It's easy for us to kind of say, well, okay, big picture, I understand that. That gives me my explanation for death, but it doesn't really do much for me now. Right, the what have you done for me lately thing, which is a comedically bad thing to ask the Lord. Verses 11 and 12 really kind of frame that. I was like, look, that salvation is not just for later even. It's actually even for now. Israel, it, it changes metaphors here now. Now it's no longer the image of the king arriving in Jerusalem, but it's now taken up the Exodus illustration again, the one that was mentioned in verses three and four. Depart, depart and go out from there. Touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, again, this is taking the Exodus imagery and saying, hey, when they fled Egypt, they fled in haste, verse 12. They fled in flight, verse 12. This is going to be something different. Because now we have this great privilege of enjoying that victory both now and into the life to come. So that the Exodus that we read about in way up top of the wall here. It tells the real true story of God's people being led out in what, the 1460s, 1440s BC. This is telling our story now of the much greater Exodus, where he's not taking us out of Pharaoh's hands, but he's taking uh, taking us out of the reign of sin and death and hell forever. And even, in fact, taking us out of its victory right now. This is a wild thing to think about, but we don't actually have to live in bondage to sin. We don't have to. Now, I mean, you still struggle with it, but you don't have to be governed by it. He promises to cleanse us from its guilt and power. We have the freedom to live in Christ, even in this great exodus now that then will take us into the life to come. Well, what do we do with a passage like this? I I think for many of us, this is not the kind of passage that resonates easily. Truthfully, I I don't think this is the kind of passage that resonates easily for a lot of us. The next sermon probably will. We like to think about Jesus. That makes us happy. We like to think about him dying on the cross and paying for my sin. That makes me happy. Makes me happy to think that I can be taken care of. But this one so often doesn't resonate because it has so much more of an other's orientation to it. So much of chapter 52 is this portrait of the Lord's arriving in Israel and that all the people get to celebrate. And if we're going to be candid, I tend to excel about me celebrating. I, I tend to excel at thinking about 
my forgiveness. I tend to excel at thinking about my walk. I tend to think, I tend to excel about thinking about me, unless it's talking about failings, at which point I tend to excel at thinking about you. Right? I think about your failings and my own spiritual development. And the reality is chapter 52 is really a challenge for all of us to say, look, part of our mission, part of our task, part of our calling are to be those people that sing the arrival of the king, to sing his arrival. It's one of the reasons why I think Lessons and Carols is such a lovely Christmas Eve service. Okay, yeah, I mean, the odds of him being born on Christmas Day are roughly one in 365. Okay, fine. But we're singing the arrival of the king. We're singing. Interestingly, when, when he comes back, the second coming, what do we have kind of as part of that? The angels singing the arrival of the king. We do this Sunday morning, and y'all sing beautifully. It makes it a wonderful place to preach. But maybe it needs to be kind of a little bit more in our brains that part of our task is to be singing that song out there as well. Now, I'm not talking about going and singing the hymns in Walmart to try to evangelize. I mean, you can do that. If you do that, please tell me the stories, because I would love to hear them. But perhaps maybe to be a little bit more thoughtful about being those people that are, are singing the hope of Christ to our neighbors to a generation that is just tragically lost, confused, and hopeless, to say, friends, there is hope out there. I know. I've experienced it. Would you like to experience it too? The king is coming, bringing salvation with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do confess, we have such good news, and we are so slow sometimes to share it. We do ask your forgiveness, and we do ask for your healing, whether that be because we are afraid, or worse yet, perhaps, that we don't actually think the message is that great. Would you please forgive us? And Lord, would you equip us to serve you faithfully and to be those messengers to your people here. Would you gather and perfect the saints, we pray, for Christ's sake, amen.